Welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast with Brett, Ed, Fran, Johnny, Matt and Paul, helping you to build more muscle and to lose weight with a hint of banter and a dash of humour. Enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to the No Nonsense... No, oh, do you know what? It's the first time I've balls it up in a long while. No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast and I was going to say episode number 136, but Johnny, I'd like you to correct me. You're not going to get the right answer because I don't know. Brilliant. You would think that you would listen to our own podcast, but clearly you don't. <laughs> Please tell me you at least download it to make sure that we get that one extra download stat. You know, I'm, I'm like, I got about maybe 100 or 200 meg left on my laptop because it's like eight year old. So no, I don't download them. Laptop? Sorry. What's wrong with your phone? <laughs> Look at the state of my phone. I'm not sure you can see it from there, but it's full of cracks and it's wrecked. Wow. Um, anyway, <laughs> this, so, so it doesn't seem like we've kind of, you know, we're after having a conversation while someone just stares at us in the room. And um, we do have a special guest today. Uh, one, um, well, obviously I know we've met. Um, she bought me tequila, so that makes me happy. <laughs> she, she probably doesn't remember this, I'm sure. <laughs> maybe she might have had a couple of tequilas herself. Um, never. <laughs> never, no, absolutely not. Um so, Johnny, I'm just going to leave you right now and say hello to Amelia. Hello. Hi. Hello. Um, for those uh, that don't know you, although I imagine most people, I think, listening will probably know you um, because, obviously, Instagram famous and all that. Um, do, you, do you want to kind of just tell people a bit about you, your background, and basically whatever it is you want people to know? Yeah, I mean, everyone already knows that I drink tequila, so thanks for that. No worries. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I am a nutrition consultant. And I'm also a lecturer and educator in sports nutrition and exercise nutrition. So I work predominantly one-to-one with clients, um, but I also teach at a couple of different universities and PT courses, um, specifically nutrition. Um, And my client base predominantly, not always, but predominantly are those who are looking to improve their relationship with food in some way, um, regardless of whether they are dieting or coming out of a diet. Um, People that really just want to work on on their food relationships and their body image and their self-worth cool that's well that's really why i wanted to get you on um mainly because well there's a few things like i've already said a couple of times like i like your approach to things mainly because i think it does align a lot with my approach and our approach that we have at nutrition not not necessarily the same kind of like techniques and stuff but just this kind of ethics and mindset some of that type of stuff that i think it lines quite well um i've kind of been known to talk a lot about like the anti-diet club and me saying I'm quite anti anti-diet <laughs> and and not in a in a way that like I think anti-diet is bad but there's some elements where I feel like th- there's some extremes probably is the politest way to put it so one reason why I really want to get you on to talk is because of where you sit yourself in that scale basically of no I'm going to change that where you kind of don't allow yourself to be put in a box, put it this way. Yeah, where I'm sat all on my own, isolated. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's just because obviously like, I I would kind of look at you as quite centralist. Is that even the right phrase? But, and this is why I want to get you on. So basically I want you to kind of talk about your approach, um, how you approach your clients. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know whether, no, I know what your answer is going to be actually. Your answer is going to probably be, actually I'm not even going to tell you your answer. I'm going to let you answer it because that's what you're here. Um, 
how, how is it that you then approach your clients then? Um, and I do appreciate, obviously, it's going to be different per client. But do you want to kind of talk about kind of like the, the types of approach you have? And the reason I suppose that question's quite loaded or leading is because I know it's not, there's not going to be one answer. Um, so do you want to just go into what you think, how like you're unique in that way? Yeah. So obviously, like I said, some of my clients come to me with fat loss goals um, and some of them will come to me with kind of no aesthetics goals whatsoever. And they just want to stop using food as an emotional crutch or they want to get out of sort of self-destructive habits that they've got with food. Um, And so I have a kind of obviously everything's really unique to the person, but there are sort of blanket things that I'll do with all clients regardless of what their goals are um so i will work on um basic mindfulness mindfulness techniques with all of my clients um if they're dieting that's a bit harder to do um and you can't always be mindful when you're dieting for various reasons but the kind of foundations are still there regardless um and all of my clients will work on self-compassion and so i'll work through kind of how they think about themselves and their self-worth and how that then translates to their eating habits and their food habits um and they'll all work on obviously the basic evidence-based nutrition principles so you know the standard four to six protein serving meals a day depending depending on who it is, um, fruits, veggies, basic nutritional recommendations for health, they'll all cover them as well. Um, so I don't really fit into the kind of, um, some of my clients will track and some of them won't. So I don't really fit into the kind of mindful and intuitive eating where nobody tracks or the kind of diet side of things where you can't have the option to take a day off tracking. So kind of, they all follow the same blanket kind of underpinning, but then they'll branch off depending on what their goals are. That makes sense. Makes total sense. And I think I'm glad you positioned that way better than asked the question. So <laughs> the problem is I, I kind of had an idea, I know what your answer's gonna be in that you won't you don't put yourself in a box. And I was trying to position that question without <laughs> giving away the answer, which I failed miserably at. So um so you, you mentioned some of the different types of approaches and stuff that you do use. Um do you use like specifically like the intuitive eating start I suppose in its like I don't know use the word clinical setting but in it's always clinical method but do you use like intuitive eating or is that something you kind of just take bits from or uh, you might yeah. you might have to explain to people we've kind of touched on intuitive eating with either some guests before or kind of some of the things we have but within no knowledge of nutrition none of us are experts in intuitive eating um you so you might have to explain just in case the audience don't necessarily know yeah so intuitive eating is a specific evidence-based model um, that has 10 principles underlying it um, and generally to work um, with intuitive eating per se specifically you should be an intuitive eating practitioner so there are specific courses that you can do that allow you to then work in a very structured intuitive eating approach because it is um, very a very specific model um, but the thing with intuitive eating is that it's weight inclusive and it's weight neutral and it rejects the diet mentality. So by definition, for me with clients, some of my clients will diet and some of them will move from tracking to a more intuitive approach and then they'll diet again. So I never reject that outright diets, uh, diet mentality. So I'm not an intuitive eating practitioner. What I do is I use some of the principles from intuitive eating. So, for example, um, food neutrality. So, you know, where no food is good and no food is bad. Um, 
removing a lot of the food rules so kind of only eating carbs before six or whatever ridiculous rules people have got and um, but at the same time because i'm an evidence-based nutritionist who works with a lot of people who want to build muscle there are certain things that we know are supportive of hypertrophy for example our protein recommendations so i don't i'm not anti-food rules as such because for me that is a guideline that i'll put into place regardless of whether someone tracking or not if they've got body composition goals i'll still say you know you should still be having a serving of protein this many times a day so by definition that's not intuitive eating and um, regardless of whether they're, they're tracking that in my fitness pal or not so i take some parts of intuitive eating and i think some parts of it are really really positive um and then i adapt it to fit my clients so i would never say that they are intuitive eaters i would say that they intuitively so, so for general part so i am going to specifically like not bodybuilding goals would you always want the end game to be they don't need to track so they they can always always sort of use intuitive eating um not always so i think it's a really positive place for someone to get to where they have they feel so in tune with their body kind of hunger and satiety and fullness signals that they don't need to track and that's obviously one of the main premises of intuitive eating is that you're very much in tune with your hunger and your fullness and your internal cues um, and you put less emphasis on external cues so things like my fitness pal or meal times for example or peer pressure um, so I think it's really important so even if I've got a gen pop client who maybe loses some weight and then might want to maintain for a while what I might do is try and have some days where they don't track per se um, and so we'll use some of the intuitive eating guidelines um, and we'll do that throughout their dieting period anyway but um, when they stop tracking they go off and don't track for a while but then they might diet again after that point I just think I think it is really important that everyone feels confident in themselves that they don't need my fitness pal because the issue obviously when you become reliant on my fitness pal is that as soon as you don't have it anymore you don't know what to do and you'll know yourself from dieting with people that you t- or, or even if it's just one day off they want to go for a meal and they can't track it so they just go screw it I'm just gonna go all out yeah and I think that's really hazardous regardless of whether someone's dieting or not so I, I will always try and encourage at certain times for each person either a day of not tracking or potentially weeks months depending on who the person is because I suppose and if, if they were in my fitness but it's almost like relying on slimming world if, if you haven't given them the tools to understand like portion size and all that all that sort of stuff then they just rely on my fitness part they do rely on sins yeah. So it works out probably the same as, as hard it is for some coaches to hear because obviously a lot of people go, right, who's my fitness pal? And I said, there's no real end game from there, is there? Just like, just track your calories and that's all you need to do when yeah. you know that's not the case. Yeah, you can't you can use my fitness pal for the next 50 years of your life. I mean, you might, you could physically, I imagine, until it's removed for someone else, but you don't want to be doing that. And I just, I, I think that, you know, we're born with these signals um, to tell us when we're hungry and when we're full. And it's, I just think it's it's sad that we don't feel that we're in a place that we can trust them. And we rely on more on our emotions and MyFitnessPal and whatever else these external cues are to decide what we eat. Um, so I don't think it necessarily has to be an end goal for people. And I'll have clients that track most of the time um, and finish still tracking most of the time. So I don't think it has to be, but I think it's a beneficial phase for everyone to go through just the ability to understand calories and that the ability to understand they don't 
need if they want to go on holiday, they know they don't need my fitness pal because obviously you can't track stuff on holidays most of the time. Yeah. And you get people tracking at the most obscure times as well. Like I've had clients who who like at the beginning of their journey have said, you know, I realized I needed support because I tracked during like my granddad's funeral or, you know, I couldn't I couldn't put my fitness pal down when I was in this setting. And it's it's scary to think that you can't be present in that extreme example, say a funeral. You can't be present in that situation because you're concerned about putting whatever you've just eaten on my fitness pal before you then do what you need to do. And so yeah, I think it's it's important. And some people, some people, I think don't need my fitness pal at all. You know, you don't have to go through a tracking phase to be able to eat intuitively. I think that's kind of an old school misconception. Um, and some people can just go straight off and not track. And that there's certain clients that that could be really beneficial for. Yeah, if you're tracking a funeral and you need to have a reevaluation, you, I think. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But you get so people get so in tune with it that they can't then get out of it well they can but they don't feel they can do you find maybe maybe i've never been asked this question but what people you find stress eat or they don't eat under stress do you think that the diet and mindset is so ingrained in some people that when they get stressed they still want to be on track so i'm i know i'm going to stress eat so i'll track my stress eat and also maybe it's an odd question. Have you ever found that? Yeah, yeah, but they, they tend to be the people that then go way, way beyond sort of mindful stress eating. And they tend to then go, like they'll class it as a binge, whether it's subjective, objective, et cetera, is an, another matter. But yeah, you do get people that track it. But I don't know if that's, I don't know how much of that's ingrained with food, with diet mindset. Mm. I think one of the really good principles of intuitive eating is to honour your feelings so that's something that I'll do with clients again, regardless of whether they're tracking us or not. Is we know so many people, and I used to be one of these people, and you may well have been as well, where you you choose not to feel things and you choose to diet to diet instead, or you choose not to eat instead, or you choose to eat loads instead. Um, and so it's uh, one of those principles is really useful, where you actually get people to look at how they feel and identify how they feel, and it it almost automatically translates into how they then treat their bodies with their nutrition. Can, can you just give an example of like the, the, what you mean by how they feel? Yeah, so for example, a lot of my clients will start journaling and I don't mean writing to your diary every day, but writing things like, you know, today I felt really stressed out and then you can, and we link it back to maybe what they felt that they ate on that day and they find that they were really mindless that day and it's identifying specific triggers for them and then saying you know like what alternative coping strategies can you have here um and it might be some sort of a bath or speaking to your mum or whatever it is but it's for each person it's different a lot of, a lot of my clients come to me with um issues like body dysmorphia and issues with how they see themselves and they attach their worth to how they look so a lot of the time they'll be journaling things like you know I felt bloated today and it could be PMS or could be anything I felt bloated today and then I felt shame and then and then they have this kind of body composition shame trigger and that spirals into then mindless eating behavior so it's about really then tracing back where that shame trigger came from in the first place and often it's something that was said to them by their dad when they were 15 years old um and I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a psychiatrist and I don't go into you know I refer out if it, if it needs to be but often people can really easily trigger this one point where they go that's what is in my head. This is what's created the shame trigger. Um, and then we kind of work through that. Yeah, I was going to say you probably kind of are a psychologist or a psycho- psychiatrist. I, I'd imagine like it's not necessarily the fact that 
you don't have to be qualified as a psychiatrist say but even that kind of high level technique probably helps loads with like the actual coaching relationship just get yeah. to know people and being personable and that type of stuff yeah and you want to know your clients I remember listening to someone speaking on another podcast and they were saying you know if you're a good nutrition consultant or a good nutritionist or a good coach you're a life coach you're much less a nutrition coach and I think that's what it is and obviously you've got your own scope of practice and and if there's actual psychological issues there you will always refer out but there are basic life coaching techniques you know we where you have very open-ended questions and it's one of the reasons why I'll have clients do updates written because they're like journals and if you pose the kind of open questions to them then it allows them to develop you know and dig a bit deeper for themselves without you pushing them too far Mm -hmm. um so yeah but I think you'll know yourselves like you you do turn into a life coach yeah you you end up uh your weekly updates or whatever type of methods you're doing ends up being 90% non-nutrition related and 10% about what actually someone's eating. Exactly. Exactly. I found that like the initial consults on the phone, that's just when, cause some of the questions are quite open-ended. You think it's gone from this particular question to what a question is. Do you think, how's it gone for, how's it gone to you? Yeah. It's amazing how that much, they, even though they don't know you, they've just gone because you've asked a certain question, they just, they open up. I've had, people, I've had people crying on the phone. I'm like, ah. That's just your accent, though, mate, let's be honest. Could be, yeah. Could be. I don't know what they're saying. You're stressing me out. <laughs> I'm, st- I'm stressing you out, boy. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, obviously, I had to disappear and look after Molly, which I think she's now asleep. Obviously, the people listening have got no idea what the hell I'm talking about, regardless. Um, so I don't know where you're up to in terms of what conversation you had for the few minutes. I was away. So I'm loath to ask a question now in case you Effectively, we were on question one, pretty much. Yeah, we just carried on that chat. We were okay. just waffling on. It's the, Johnny says question one. Like, this is weird because we don't actually usually have many actual questions. Not that they were actual questions, but... Yeah, it was just three of us. We just talk bollocks and was a time to and solve So, I mean, obviously, we've we've obviously talked about intuitive eating and how you will take some of those parts of that approach, but not all of it. I mean, it, I I always find like the what people think intuitive eating is, obviously, for the most part, isn't like people have an idea of what intuitive eating is, and in reality, it's probably not that. It's probably more they're thinking of things like mindfulness techniques or just like the I suppose like the colloquial term of just being mindful um do you is that so have you talked about unless i missed it when you were speaking to johnny but have you talked much about kind of like the mindfulness type of stuff that you you can use because in ter- terms of like methods um that people might use for coaching and specifically obviously clients might use themselves for, for weight loss you might have tracking non-tracking like habitual based stuff and the mindfulness things i always find is funny like people think it's like woo or hippie but I don't think that many people realise that that can actually still underpin all of those other approaches. Like you, they're not binary, or no, not, it's not a binary. That's not a dichotomy in terms of it's one yeah. or the other. It's so, not mutually exclusive. Exactly. So, is that something that you also use? Yeah. So, like I said, I use mindfulness with probably ninety nine percent of my clients in some way, mm-hmm. and I very much treat it like a spectrum. So, you've got people who don't track who honour their hunger, their fullness, and they're very, very mindful in everything that they do um, and meditate every day. And they're kind of the extremes of mindfulness that I have as clients. Then I'll have other clients who the extent of their mindfulness in terms of their eating might be just sitting down, eating without distractions and being present um, in their food. Because 
yeah, there's like it's just a spectrum, and I think people confuse it with intuitive eating quite a lot. And it's it's I suppose a proponent or a component of intuitive eating, so it's part of intuitive eating, but it's not the same thing at all. And intuitive eating, like I said, is weight neutral and rejects dieting. And you can use mindfulness as part of dieting to promote, um, you know, being fuller for longer. For example, if you slow down your meal, and um, potentially improve digestion and and things like that. So mindfulness is really just about being present. Um, in the moment on purpose and non-judgmentally and those concepts are things that we don't do generally day-to-day with our food you know we're always sat sat down taking pictures on our phone or in front of the tv or feeding our family and we're kind of thinking about what we need to do once we finish dinner we're judging what's on our plate we're saying you know there's not enough protein in here or you know there's not enough vegetables in here it's the complete opposite of what we've ended up doing and so just by having a mindful meal that is incorporating mindfulness within your meal and that is literally just sitting down without distractions taking your time paying attention to kind of what you've got on your plate and not 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 judging what you've got there just enjoying what you've got there whatever that may be yeah so uh, just in case people didn't kind of get i suppose there's there's like you say a, a scale of mindfulness in terms of the whole like meditation side and kind of like holistically being mindful about many aspects of your life but there's also the mindfulness aspect of specifically food when eating. So like you say, eating without distraction and stuff. So cool. Um, it, in terms of like intentional weight loss then, um, I'm trying to think like for people listening, how they can, well, you kind of have covered it, I suppose. I think how they can marry those those together. So that kind of mindfulness technique while also trying to kind of intentionally lose weight if they want to diet because obviously that can be quite difficult for a lot of people especially when you start talking about oh the intuitive eating or eating intuitively i should say rather than intuitive eating and that people feel like if they just listen to their hunger they would naturally lose weight or whatever um that can be quite difficult so you did cover some of it then in some of some of the stuff i didn't know if you want to go into a bit more detail about kind of like specifically the things so like eating not distracted and I think I think like we were talking about the kind of scale of mindfulness per se, and you've got mindful eating within that. There's also kind of that scale within mindful eating of what mindful eating is, um, in my opinion, in the sense of if you are a fully mindful eater, like I said, you you eat without distraction and you are present in the moment, and you'll often sit down and take a couple of breaths before you start your meal, for example. Um, and anybody can do that. Anybody, regardless of whether they're dieting or not, can sit down without distraction and eat um, a meal. And another way to do it is by just increasing your food variety. So often you'll find people who diet eat the same thing every single day. Um, They don't really register what they're doing. And then within five minutes, they're hungry again and they're waiting for their next meal. But doing something as simple as varying your meals. So even if it's just like having different vegetables each day. The, the differences in taste encourage you to be a bit more mindful of what you're doing because you're eating something different so you're a bit more aware of it um but then if you've got somebody who's not dieting for example they can kind of extend it and then we can start looking at like people's hunger so really tuning into someone's hunger and saying if you are hungry then honor that hunger by eating a meal obviously when you're dieting you can't honor your hunger because you have to be hungry and i think that's quite a key distinction between when you can be fully mindful and when you can't um mindful eating is honoring your hunger and honoring your fullness and so if you're not dieting that's a really good time to practice starting to listen to your internal cues and thinking about if you're hungry and honoring that um and that's one of the issues that people have when they finish dieting or when they have a diet break is that they associate guilt with honoring their hunger because they feel like they should be hungry all the time and that's when we get a lot of disturbances post-diet because people 
they kind of lose that ability to pay attention to their hunger anymore. And then whenever they feel full, they feel guilty because they've not been full for four months and they associate that with negative like negative thoughts. Um, and so you kind of have to, if you're dieting, you can, you can do it uh, on a small scale, but it's really important to take diet breaks and to have kind of off-season time or, you know, maintenance periods where you practice then looking at your hunger and your fullness cues and honouring them as well. If that makes sense. It does. You can see why people have dieted all their lives, uh, all their lives. I'm meant, no, I'm not. I want my word is they are mental. <laughs> you can see how they've got so many issues with food because they've dieted, like whatever they've used, whatever method they've used. Mm. They've dieted, they've lost the weight, put it back on, lost the weight, put it back on. And they've always, usually, they always follow a particular program and they, without understanding really why they're losing weight, they've, they've never thought about mindful eating. Yeah. So oh. you can imagine they must be in a right, not, I don't want to say it, be an arse, but right a mental. mess nutritionally in the head. Less, yeah. that is that is a term I've not heard before Johnny I'm glad you said it um yeah but the, a lot of that as well comes from not practicing food neutrality so whether they are counting sins or whether they are used, having cheat meals or um you know they've cut out whole food groups like carbs they then associate this and have these negative connotations to those foods so as soon as they stop dieting they even start to you know have a cheat food which is like horrible phrase but you know they, they have one of these foods and then they feel horrendously guilty and so they have loads of it to kind of numb the feeling of feeling guilty and then they just have this kind of up and down weight constantly that, that's what it is now how much of this comes from like bodybuilding i was i was seeped down from bodybuilding cheap mm. meals cutting carbs all this stuff it's like all this it's all been like around for like 50 years yeah. with army and all those again amazing i was coming from that well not solely from that but a lot of that yeah Yeah. i think the rise of obviously the rise of social media and seeing people talk about cheat meals and i mean it's a bloody hashtag it's 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 everywhere and it's just people i think that you know if you've got the extreme of like people who compete and i work with some people who compete um and they still practice mindful eating to a certain extent um but if you've got these extremes and they're kind of preaching over and over again cheat meals cheat meals cheat meals they they are very much shut off to anything else. So if I said to a bodybuilder, other than my clients, right, I want you to practice mindful eating in your meals, they'd tell me to get stuffed. Um, it's they're starting to take on things like that more and more and more concepts like that. But you're right, like it's so much. It's it's yeah, it's a it's a very vocal group and a very influential group, considering there aren't that many of them. I think because of the condition they're in, they've almost got that authority of they look at me. I can walk on a 17 stone with abs all day long. You know, yeah. without all the stuff, other stuff they do, obviously. Yeah. God, for me to be like, oh, men, and even mostly, or even women, physique women, bodybuilding women, I, if I want to look like that, I have to do what they do. And I won't listen to someone who's got 50 times more intelligence, but yeah. doesn't look like them. Yeah, I mean, I competed, and I, and I still have to, well, I don't have to, but I still use that as a kind of, it's awful. You never want to use your body as a way to sell your message. So I don't I don't ever put, if I put a competing picture up, I'll never use it with some sort of nutritional information because I think it's, that is one thing about diet culture that I, that I don't like. Um, and we'll probably go into that a little bit, but it's using your body to sell a message. Um, and that's what, unfortunately, bodybuilding coaches a lot, a lot, not all of them at all, but a lot of them will do is use their body to sell a message. And that can be really, really detrimental. It's very much like, 
you associate your brains or you associate your your self-worth with like trophies oh yeah um i was just going to say one thing about you two just you both just well millie said it and johnny you reiterated it about like um the the peaks and troughs and some of the food relationship issues that people have i was just going to say that's one of the things the anti-diet club have obviously got right in my opinion in that for people in those circumstances like mentally i suppose um like a weight neutrality perspective and an anti-diet type of perspective probably is what they need because constantly trying to diet is like you know they've probably not honored their hunger and done a lot of those things that you talked about for so long that, that you know that is why they go up and down these different periods and like add in things like your emotion guilts and all the other types of stuff it's obviously a, a, a huge problem for people so i did just want to say like i do like, as much as i kind of diss the anti-diet culture to some extent there's obviously that's one thing they got right for some areas of like humanity i suppose is a can't think of a better word um but then you start talking about something then which um so i was like oh no i've got two points i want to get on so that's obviously passed now the, ne- the the last bit you just said around um remind me what you just said unless you've forgotten like i just lost my train of thought um, we were talking about anti-diet culture so before that well, before I... body to sell your message yes thank you so because basically i want to say that before i lost my train of thought and then i lost my train of thought about the thing i had already thought of <laughs> so we're guilty of that we are guilty within even our business so of of probably doing things what you've just described so i'm not gonna lie and it's difficult for for like someone that is trying to build a client base and a business and stuff to almost not use what you would consider marketing tactics and marketing techniques it's really hard and go almost against like maybe what your ethics might be because you kind of you see people selling or doing really well selling themselves basically selling their bodies by just posting ab shots or bikini shots or whatever like just if you look at someone's instagram feed and that's all it is with a a caption underneath that says buy my plan or whatever a lot of those are really successful in terms of well they seem successful anyway put it this way um they seem like they're successful and maybe selling things and obviously that's quite hard for other companies not to emulate so i suppose like what what made you think that obviously other than the fact that it is potentially is detrimental to people's um i suppose well-being or mental health etc for, for people that consume social media what what made you kind of go down that thought process or well it, yeah um i think it is really hard like you said we all put when, when i sorry when i said we i did mean me as in not no i know i do <laughs> but we all put our we all to some extent put our bodies out there and what I tend to do now with mine is that I will talk a lot more about if I put a picture of myself out there it'll be a lot more uh, an emotive post about you know mindset or something away from food because I think I'm trying to dissociate them a little bit um, because obviously with social media it's a snapshot isn't it and mm-hmm. people who follow me now won't know that I competed for four or five years and they won't see the kind of diet side of things now um, and so I think it can be a really false image of what I did to to be at this point, which is well, fine, like I'm fine with where, where I am body composition wise. And I think it can be quite detrimental. Um, it, it's hard. So obviously the anti-diet culture, anti-diet movement are very much against sort of associating bodies with what, like external, how we look with our self-worth. And that's what we exacerbate by putting pictures out there as part of social media. Um, it's really, really hard. I think that the best thing that we can do is practitioners who are evidence-based and don't want to perpetuate it is try and be as honest as we can 
you know, try and not perpetuate this kind of need for fake versus real, which I've done myself many times in the past, um, but I try not to do anymore, where we almost still feel the need within fitness to justify fake and justify real you know so people that still put up pictures say of you know cellulite versus no cellulite as much as it can be helpful to people I think that just put a picture up of cellulite and carry on with your day like I, I feel a little bit like we as a fitness within the fitness industry and the health industry we exacerbate it by overcompensating a little bit um but at the same time, you know, it, it, there is a theory, the social comparison theory. I don't know if you've heard of it, where if you, when you compare yourself to others, you can be either motivated by them or you can be demoralized by them. And so people can be motivated by pictures of people in the gym or abs or whatever it is. And if they want to be motivated by that, then that's, then that's okay. And I think that that's, that group of people are kind of missed by the anti-diet movement because they sort of say, well, no everyone feels crap when they look at these pictures. So therefore, no one should put these pictures out there. And I, and that's not the case. Um, so it's hard. It's hard to kind of marry them. And you'll be in the same boat, I think. Yeah. That, I suppose that's where you draw the line of how much you think the responsibility is with the kind of the creator or the consumer. Yeah. And I think it's both. And I say this to my, to my clients a lot if they're having a really few bad weeks I'm, and I'll, I'll call them out on it and I'll say who is it that you've looked at this who have you seen whose Instagram have you seen this on why are you still following these people and there is a I do think there is some personal responsibility I think it lies with all of us um but change starts with you it really does and that's such an Instagram cliche quote and I'm almost embarrassed that I said it but it does and you can't you can't moan about other people not doing anything about it when you're sitting there absorbing the information yourself no, for sure. Um, where where do you or how do you feel about people that do post like pictures of themselves through, I suppose, pride or because obviously a lot of people do post pictures of themselves because they are proud of, you know, you know, take the whole Transformation Tuesday kind of thing. You know, you see these pictures of people that have lost either tremendous amounts of weight or just kind of completely changed their physiques and they're a lot of times they're generally posting because they really want to share that with people because they're very proud of what they've achieved so kind of what are your thoughts in in people doing that then i think i think great if someone's proud of the, their achievements and i'll do got my 10-year transformation is is obscene but like i do think it's i don't mean for muscle just mean <laughs> hair color and a tan but um i think that it why not if you are transparent and honest about how you got to that place, I think that's the difference. You know, when you're denying things, so so for example, when I put mine up, someone trolled me because I had my lips done. And I was like, yeah, I'm not gonna deny the fact that that's happened because that's where the issues fall, where it's this unrealistic expectation. And whether that be from surgery or extreme dieting, eating disorders, drugs, whatever it is, that's where the issue lies, I think. Um, so I think, sure, put your transformation up if it's honest. But I think a lot of the time as well within our industry is that these transformations are start point, perceived end point, but not actual end point. Um, and the person posting it is putting up a really good fat loss transformation, but they're sat at home in a really bad state. Um, and I think that, again, that's where the issues lies. I think it with most of social media, I think it comes down to authenticity and really trying to be be well-intentioned and be um, authentic in what you do. And I think that's the best way we can minimise what is effectively damaging to people. We know that the research is there. The more social media use you have, the more disordered eating you're potentially 
experiencing and the lower your body satisfaction. So the evidence is there. It's whether we contribute to it or we try and support it in some way or minimise that kind of, don't want to say damage, but the detrimental effects of it in some way. Because you do, you do find people like, have got very extreme physiques or bodybuilders or physiques or whatever, they they do try and make it out like you can do it. Because not everybody can do it. Not everybody can mentally go to that place where you need to be really extreme to get to that single digit body fat level. And they say, look at my flex bowl. I can eat whatever is in there. They say, yeah, you ain't doing that on 1,300 calories when you're on death's door on the last week before show. Absolutely. So they try to make it a lot, oh, it's quite easy. Look, you have a go yourself. And it's like, that could really put someone in a really mentally bad place. Yeah. Knowing things you have to do to be extremely lean. Yeah, exactly that. You don't see the pain, and, and and I will firsthand say it is painful. It is it's not enjoyable for a couple of months before and a couple of months after. And regardless of whether you win trophies, it, that's a temporary thing. And I love the sport when I competed in it, and I, I would I don't I don't slate the sport of bodybuilding at all. Um, but it is very very extreme, and and I think that as well, people need to realise that not everyone wants to do that. And not everyone should want to do that. I don't think it should be a goal of everyone to look like a bikini athlete or a bodybuilder. Um, it's not a goal of a bikini athlete to look like that most of the time. But that's the type of message that just isn't often shared. More it is, a bit more now, but even now, not really. A few years ago, lo- only local to me, a lot of women, you know, I want, I want to do a physique show. Why? What for? What for? To see what I can do. Mm. So it's not really the reason to do I don't think unless you love that sort of sport. But then that's why, that's why I did it. I Well, I did it as a way to kind of numb what was going on in my life. I was doing my PhD and I didn't want to think about my PhD and I, and I had some other things going on. So I just dieted myself into oblivion and I did it for four or five years quite successfully. So I went into it for the wrong reasons as well, which is why I can completely empathise. Um, but it's just not something that is should be a goal for everyone. Um, and it sh- and if you- if it is like if I have someone come to me that wants to prep, I'm very transparent on what it takes, and often they'll go to another coach because I won't put them through what they need to go through. For but a lot, do you think you doing that has brought you to the place you are now? Do you think you'd be where you are now if you didn't do that? No, no. So potentially, I think it was a positive. Not at the time. I loved. It. I loved it. I think I really do. I love to sport. I came second in Britain. So, like, I feel like I really achieved something and I, I was proud of it and I got a lot of friendships and relationships at the time from it. And I love the sport and I learned a lot about taking your body to extremes. And I will still, for some clients, I don't prep a lot, but for a couple of girls and guys who I know can do it, I can then empathize and push them through it. So, yeah, it really helped me. And it also, unfortunately for me, like, well, fortunately for anyone, like, I may have my PhD and my master's and I'm a nutritionist but realistically I know that if I didn't compete when I started competing I had two or three thousand followers I couldn't have started a business at that point and I was lecturing and so it, the sad fact is is that yes it did support me in the industry to to, the, to get to a point where I can use my evidence base to kind of support people and that's is sad but that's just the way that it, it is. people what they want to see and they want to see that to know or they can do it, or they've done it themselves. So I think there's always that aspect of some people, oh, yeah, they got a PhD, they're a doctor. It's like, you can't get any higher. You should listen to them. They go, well, they have grabs, have they? It's like, well, does that really matter? <laughs> you know what I mean? 
I know. And also, I think there's been a bit of a backlash, and uh, you might have seen it as well, between um, with the rise of evidence-based. So when I started coaching, there, were, there weren't really many evidence-based people around, but more so now with the rise of nutrition, et cetera, we've got a lot more evidence-based nutritionists like you guys. And I think that there's been a bit of a backlash by people who are more extreme and kind of the old school approach towards oh, science people. And it's like, I think that it's really hard, but for people like that, they they do need to see practice what you preach and and for buy-in from their side of things. And for me, it's I want to be part of that world because I want to be able to support people in that. And I'll go to bodybuilding um, uh, days and workshops and present because I think that they don't have that evidence-based support so you so you want to get buy-in from them as well but it's yeah it's like you can see why people like, like you, you've seen jordan peterson them new yeah so he's like was he 19 stone off season evidence-based so he's got everything that someone needs to lock and go right I'll, I'll listen to you because you are giant and you know what you're talking about obviously maybe some of his things are a bit questionable however you know what i mean but more majority of the time he's evidence-based you know and he's massive, so he gets a buy-in. So he will you guarantee he's going to use his luck to get the clients he wants to give them what they need, but sell them what they want, but give them what they need. Yeah, which is what a lot in it. Yeah, it's so hard. It's so hard. I, you never want to use your like. Well, I don't. I never want to use my body to sell my message ever. But you then at the same time you don't want to be stigmatized because you look a certain way or you look like you go to the gym. It's it's a minefield. Don't, mind. don't don't worry, John. You'll never have that problem, mate. <laughs> no, for I'm not five foot four. And I realised I said Jordan Peterson, not Peters. He's a psychologist. <laughs> he's very skinny. Yes, he's very, very skinny, and and also not particularly evidence-based when it comes to nutrition. Unfortunately, <laughs> I would quite like to be five twenty stone with abs. However, I'm not willing to risk my life to be that size. Are you <laughs> suggesting that JP's on gear? I would say. Just a little, little, <laughs> a little bit. I did you. You were doing once. That's a, that's horrific. But whatever. You crack on. That's that's. I, I, we're not having any libel cases here, mate. So let's. Oh not... no, he said it himself. All right, fine. He said it himself. He's like grams and grams and grams. Like, oh, there we are then. No. What? Like sugar so. puffs. <laughs> yeah. Grams. Just sugar puffs today. Post workout. Make sure it's post workout. It doesn't count. Ah, oh, so outrageous. Um. I'm going to try and create a segue here. <laughs> so obviously <laughs> bodybuilders, um, I say obviously, bodybuilders in my opinion are quite often some of the most self-conscious people you'll find, um, which you would hypothesize is probably what drives a lot of them um, to the sport, I suppose. Um, this, is, this is a really shit segue. <laughs> I tried really hard. Um, I was going to say, so maybe they need a bit of self-love. How do you implement self-love with not just bodybuilders, but the people you work with? I do do this with my bodybuilding clients as well. Um, so, yeah, I work predominantly on self-compassion as opposed to directly self-love. There are a couple of basic type of you know self-love things that we can do things like practicing gratitude every day and, and practicing positive affirmations where you look in the mirror and you see one thing that you like about yourself about who you are as a person rather than you know what you look like that day they're kind of basic very basic things that I think everyone should be doing so tomorrow you guys look in the mirror tell yourself one thing you like about yourself and then do it every single day 
Um, and I think that that's a really kind of basic thing. And um, even so, if we look at gratitude, so I talk a lot about gratitude on my Instagram and on my stories, and I'll practice it every day because it is associated with um, improved body satisfaction. Apart from overall wellness um, and sort of overall happiness, we actually look at it in terms of self-worth, body composition, the types of clients that we'll work with, practicing daily gratitude does result in reduced disordered eating and um, improved body image in research in some cases. So it's something that's really easy to do. Um, but then if we look at the more self-compassion side of things, so self-compassion is about um, being kind to yourself so that you can also then be kind to other people. Um, and it's about not basing your worth on kind of the external stuff. So I'll have certain, there's a researcher called Kristen Neff who is a researcher in self-compassion and she proposes a lot of different techniques um, that I will then adapt, I have adapted to support clients. So one thing that I did when I, I spent summer in California, or I spent summer in California and I went to UCLA actually have a um, mindfulness awareness research center. So they do a lot of evidence-based mindfulness work over there. And I went to a day over there, a day of evidence-based self-compassion. Um, and it was amazing. And, and one of the things that we did was we had to we do a lot of meditation, um, which cultivates self-compassion and kindness just on its own, regardless of what type of meditation you do. Um, so, again, that's one thing that I will use with clients, a lot of clients. Um, but, yeah, they, they, you have to sit down, you meditate, you write, you write down what it is that you really don't like about yourself or something that you feel really negative about yourself. And then you go off, you do some, you know, what we what we might do a self-love meditation, self like a loving kindness meditation, and then come back and write to yourself as if you were coming from a place of somebody who you love and respect. So it might you can pick whoever you want. And then imagine you're in their shoes and sit down and write to yourself again what they'd say to you about all of those things you've just written. Um and then keep that letter. But then what I'll do with clients is a lot of the time I'll get them to do that simple task. And then they'll come back to me and they'll say, I said all these things, but I realized that it wasn't my granddad that said it. For example, it was me that said it to myself. Therefore, I have the capability of speaking to myself in that way. And that can be quite an important turning point for them where they because they just don't realize that they have that ability to speak kindly to themselves. Um, so there's a lot of different things. There's a lot of different techniques I'll use. And that's kind of one really basic example of that. But a lot of the time it's about learning to dissociate from the thoughts in your head. So you know all those conversations in your head that are like, you're fat, you're ugly, you're a failure, etc. when you fail on your diet. It's about sort of dissociating from them as, I'm going to get a little bit kind of spiritual here, but it's dissociating in terms of that's your ego talking and chattering. And it's about saying, I don't have to listen to those thoughts. I can stop those thoughts and I can reframe them and replace them with alternative, more positive thoughts. And it takes a lot of work. It's not something that, you can't just say, here's your macros and here's some self-compassion work and off you go in two weeks, you're going to love yourself and everything's going to be fine. It doesn't work like that. Um, so you have to be willing to put in the work in the first place and kind of sit in these uncomfortable situations where, like, I'm a scientist. So doing stuff like that, to me initially, was like, this is ridiculous. I feel like I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, but it works and it is evidence-based. Uh -huh. So I was going to say that, like you said, I'm a scientist and it feels odd, but what you're suggesting is evidence-based so it shouldn't really make you feel that way 
Yeah, I know. It's just it's when you come from a very like quantitative, scientific, lab-based um, PhD and, and training, it's very obviously it's very very different to look at kind of qualitative research and all of that stuff. But it's evidence-based, and I, and I can't express that enough. So like on Instagram, I'll I'll be talking about like red flags and like in terms of ex-boyfriends and things like that but they all relate to your nutrition in some way and they relate in an evidence-based way it's just about how you figure out how it fits into your life and how it's relatable to you i've, I've meditated once and i need to do it but it's it's really hard isn't it to go just think of nothing oh my God. it's quite difficult actually only 10 minutes but it felt like it is. 30 seconds oh. however it was like you have to go stop Stop it. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't necessarily think meditation has to be thinking of nothing. As if I don't. I don't think this sounds controversial because I think <clears throat> meditation is more about being happy or just at rest with what thoughts just happen to come through your head. Yeah, yeah. It's about being. It's literally about being present. So you just like if my if I was like that, I would just keep thinking about my breath. And like you, a really simple thing you can do is just count your breath like four breaths in four, like four seconds in four seconds out you're you're still thinking about something you're just not thinking about things that's going on in your head one of my clients said to me oh meditation i've realized it's just like doing reps for your brain like you do in the gym and she said every time that my mind wanders and i bring it back that's one rep and i've made my mind stronger and so she she used that kind of in a really i guess in a really positive way to say like it was strengthening it um because everyone thinks they can't do it everyone's like it's too hard my mind just wanders but that's that's almost the point that like keep bringing it back yeah. and think about people who potentially mindlessly eat or feel that they binge eat for example before they before they fall into that cycle their mind goes off and they're not present so if they can figure out how to keep bringing their mind back to the present moment that'll allow them in that moment to to stop and bring themselves back to the present moment before they then fall into some sort of mindless eating habits yeah. it's a pretty powerful tool in our meditation yeah, let's go and do it. Because I've read, I've, I've read a book by Zog Get, which is the zero sort of book, and it's like, you know, they, they, they give a little, like, a, I don't know, it's like a little diagram of, like, someone who's really new to someone who's, a, like, an expert at it. And they said that you feel they're a lot happier. And they, even if they think they can, they can see a negative thought, they just go, right, I identify that's a negative thought, and that's it, and it's gone. So I'll tell you what I couldn't recommend more, Johnny, is um, I've got Waking Up by Sam Harris on my phone. And um, it's a, like, meditation app. It's brilliant. I don't do it enough. Like I've just let let it slide a bit, especially since it's not been work. It's um, my routine and structures just gone out the window, so I need to get back doing more. But I, I would recommend that, or uh, you've got Headspace and those types of apps as well. I think a lot of those can help just like people just get into it to start with. How often should you do that? Is it daily? Is it a daily thing? Five times a day, daily, whatever. Yeah. Daily. Just start with like three times a week, and then try and do three times a week for a while, and then four, five, etc. Like anything, right? You don't want to start off going balls deep in meditation i don't know sometimes people like start off going balls deep so um <laughs> that just reminded me when i said earlier about how do you implement self-love i realized that sounded not really how i meant it to sound so <laughs> um, anyway uh, by the by um one thing we haven't which i we haven't talked about what i wanted to just quickly touch on um was kind of like we didn't specifically mention like health at every size and i wanted to because I want to know a lot of the things we've already talked about uh, do cross over anyway in terms of your intuitive eating and your mindfulness and stuff. And obviously, you've already talked about weight neutrality and um, though that like the anti diet stuff. 
what is your thoughts on like Hayes specifically? Is it something that you like, don't like, or being like you're, you're, I suppose some of your background, are you ever pressured into like Hayes is, is a, a, a approach that you should take and then therefore you're kind of judged for not and you know, the things you already said about not being boxed and not taking like one approach. Is there anything you've kind of felt your judgment for or? I, <laughs> I'm sitting on the fence. No, I think um, Hayes has got some strong arguments and some very, very weak arguments. So Hayes basically bases uh, their argument on um, health should be a weight neutral approach, like you said, um, and it should be very much based on healthy behaviours as opposed to weight. And their argument is that you can be overweight on like say the BMI scale but you can be healthier than somebody who is potentially a normal weight because you have more healthy habits and to some extent if we're not looking at the extremes we know that that's that is true um the issue is this complete exclusion of weight in the sense of if somebody is morbidly obese they they do need to lose weight for their health um they don't have to measure their weight to know that they're losing weight you know, they can focus on healthy habits and, and take a weight neutral approach, but they still have to lose weight. Um, and Hayes are very much like we were talking about earlier, part of that anti-diet movement um, where they suggest someone's plucked 95% of diets fail from somewhere. And Hayes very much have clung to the statistic that diets fail. Um, and that's also not true. Like if you look at the research over five years, I think the six weight maintenance rate is something like 80% um, and then 20, no, no sorry, the weight maintenance rate is 20%, 80% tend to go back to their start weight and so if you've got somebody who is a Hayes proponent, they might look at that and say right well 80% of those diets have failed but actually not everybody wants to lose weight and keep it off you know some people want to lose weight and then for a specific occasion and then, and then gain weight again or they're happy to gain weight again and I think if we actually look at the ones who succeed, the diets that succeed, they are the ones that incorporate potentially mindfulness, but they look at habits and they look at, they have really solid support from a coach or a dietitian or PT or whoever it is. Um, and it's it's more the fad diets that don't work. So I think um, I've had some backlash from intuitive eaters and haze, but I've also had backlash from other people. I don't think it's specific to them. I think the issue that we have is the people, like anything um, in our kind of culture these days, anybody who, anyone who's really extreme, who doesn't see both sides of the coin, I think that's that's the issue. The actual movement itself, I think, can be positive for some people. Um, weight stigma is a real thing. And we know that people who are stigmatized with their weight are less likely to get health support and, you know, have more disordered eating and are less likely to be able to lose body fat. So um, we don't want to stigmatise people for the weight. That evidence is there. It's just about finding... We also don't want to stigmatise these people who want to lose weight because they want to lose weight. Um, so it's really hard to navigate kind of in the middle, which is where I try and go, which I think you guys try and go. It was probably set up with good intentions, but it's just been made extreme, and that's what just messes it up. Yeah. Everything. Keep yeah. it what it should have been in the first place. Don't try and go extreme and try and get noticed, because it'll just be, it'll be ridiculous. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it could, it, the psychology of it is, is true, isn't it? Mm -hmm. If you form healthy habits, you're more likely to lose weight and keep it off long term, because you understand why you've got healthy habits, intuitive eating, all that sort of stuff. 
mm-hmm. like to say you're 40 stone, you're healthy, is probably not true. If you were 30 stone, you would be healthier, with 100% guaranteed almost. For so that you know potentially someone's looking and going, oh, actually these people say it's okay to be 40 stone, and they won't do anything about it because that's a very difficult place to come back from. I would I would think. Yes. And it's and, and you can say it's okay, you know, it, it is okay. And body neutrality should be something I think it's just slightly different from body positivity. But body neutrality is very much like about um, being grateful for what your body can do and appreciating that your body's going to change and that's okay. And whether regardless of whether it changes naturally or you change it yourself, that's okay. And I think that's a really positive message because you can be morbidly obese and, and you're you're okay, like it's it's okay. But that doesn't mean that changing from a place of appreciating your body as it is right now, you can still you can still change and get healthier. Um, I, I don't. Yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Just cut that one short. <laughs> it is hard. No, it is hard. And I mean, the, I always think a lot of these things. It just it almost comes down to look. Don't be a dick. Like the, if you've got kind of that as a general ethos. Like it kind of works for most things in terms of like, yes, like you say, a lot of things about health at every size and anti-diet culture and all these things, weight neutrality, brilliant. But if you then assume that if you don't necessarily align with those things that makes you a dick, I, I think that's where it goes wrong because there are lots of people, like you say, that do want to lose weight. And that doesn't make them a dick because they want to lose weight. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I explain that well, but that's kind of it just comes to like people can separate the difference sometimes of like the intentions of like weight stigma and well, actually, no. I just I want to feel a bit more confident, better about myself, and I personally would feel that way by losing a bit of weight. It doesn't mean you have to judge someone else or you know you're you're a judgmental person because of that. And the same with people in the fitness industry necessarily as well. I don't know. It's, it is it is hard, like you say. It's hard to kind of get this kind of like politically correct culture as well as everything else and it can be quite difficult really for to kind of as a as a fitness professional to find your kind of way without you know you know just find your way really i suppose yeah and uh, i think we are, we have as an industry we, we have been um proponents of fat shaming to a certain extent whether we do it as a joke or whether we do it because we assume people want to look like us or you know whatever however we approach it in the past i think we've all been guilty of doing it at some point um glorifying being thinner rather than being bigger when potentially we were heavier then and I think that we all have to own up to our roles that we play in it mm-hmm. and try and not perpetuate it and I think that's all we can really do have good intentions but be open to the arguments um, if they're legit and evidence based arguments yeah. um, I'll probably I'll like obviously I'll respect your time so thank you so much for obviously the time you're giving I was just going to say I feel like a lot of the stuff you talked about is like the the new age of coaching i'm going to say that in that you know a lot of the evidence-based stuff that you hear and see all the time now from people in terms of kind of you know the the the, the quality quantitative science stuff like you say in terms of macros and food types and saturated fats fatty profiles and it, all, all the stuff basically that an evidence-based individual would kind of use in terms of their nutritional content um for helping people but i think if you can get all that stuff and marry it with some of the less quantitative stuff more qualitative stuff like the the things that are good in anti-diet culture and haze and you know the, the self-love and self-compassion all the things that you've talked about if you can get them and, and almost make like a hybrid of, of mm. them all which is obviously what you're trying to do i do think that's what's going to set a lot of people apart um from not only 
as a good coach, but as well as for people that actually have, you know, the, the actual clients that they, the, the end result obviously then helps. Um, I do think that's where most people go. And certainly I think that it's where I'm really interested in and where I want, you know, us to get to as well. I mean, we're nowhere near there. So obviously for us, it's quite still a learning point, a learning curve, which I'm so grateful for you to come on and like talk about your experiences and stuff as well and, and obviously your knowledge. But yeah, I've got lots more to learn. So, but I do think it's where I think a lot of people should get. It's a big, it's a big area, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it is, and I think people are scared of it because you get someone coming to you because they think they want fat loss, but actually they realise it's because they hate themselves, and in two months they say, "I don't want to lose fat anymore," and their before and after picture doesn't look that different six months down the line. Yeah, yeah. But their headspace is infinitely better. But you don't. But how, how people are scared of that because they think, "How do I sell this?" And that's. But for me, and same as you, I'm sure that's not. It's not about that. You want to sell your message in the sense you want to help more people, but that's not what you should be focusing on. Your end result is not the transformation picture. Your end result is having that client go away and say, I feel like I can go out for dinner now and, and not have a meltdown. And that's yeah. our end result. But how you sell that on a world in a world where we're basically on social media all the time and trying to sell this image of something, I think that's why people are so scared of that movement. But tough. Yeah. <laughs> What's the, what's the research of nutrition I was in physically? The nuances of muscle point synthesis. I mean, who cares? What's that going to do to most people? Nothing whatsoever. It's definitely, but, it's definitely better to stimulate muscle point synthesis six times rather than five, Johnny. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you might gain an extra pound over the next 35 years of muscle, maybe. But like for, for the mental aspect, that's the, definitely, for me, the biggest issue with the majority of dieters, especially from people who've been through like the 80s and 90s diet culture. Yeah. You can sort, if you can go like that, click of it and switch their mind, then they'd all be sorted forever. Yeah. I was, I'm reading a book just now, actually, and it's about, and, and I'm only on like chapter two, but they were talking about um, how we make, it was talking about how we make decisions. And there was this, years and years ago, somebody got like their part of their frontal lobe removed. And basically what they deduced from that is that his emotion was removed and he couldn't make even the most rational decisions he couldn't make without couldn't, his emotion. Couldn't even decide to, what to eat kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I've, yeah. I've heard that story. I think probably the same book. Yeah, probably. And it's, and then that was because he didn't have his, his emotions. And I think it's really naive to, for people to think, oh, well, if we just tell them to grind harder and they, we improve their willpower, then they'll be able to make these decisions and drop body fat and maintain it. And that's, that's not how our bodies work. And it's really naive of people to think that that's going to resolve it or fix, fix people. Yeah, not sure. only fix, but you know what I mean. I'm, gl- I'm glad you said about um, the amount of people that come to you obviously looking to lose weight and then it's not really what they like subconsciously is not what they need or want really because i i would say other than athletes or you know kind of people looking for like performance nutrition support everyone else pretty much is in that boat or in that category like most people come to you thinking they want to lose weight and yes they might lose weight but that isn't the underlying issue that they really came with yeah yeah Yeah, I used to. I think I used to be really insecure about it. I used to think I'm going to get this reputation for people coming to me and not being able to lose weight, and I was really insecure about it as a coach. Um, and then I, well, then I grew up here and realised that was ridiculous. But it's, it, yeah, it's not. People will lose fat, and people will feel better when they lose fat. Some people, and that's great. And people will extreme diet, and that's also great. But often people, if you're attributing what you look like and to your self worth. And you think that you're going to improve your self worth by dieting? That's not usually the case. No. Not always. Not usually. No. 
Right. Well, I'm also reading a book at the minute, but it's one I bought specifically for moments just like this. So. <laughs> What, Johnny? What? What? Are you going to quote something here? No, I'm not going to quote anything. Um, so, Johnny knows this, but you may not. Usually when we have guests, we, we like to end on some non-nutrition related. And I generally end up asking some really ridiculously cringy questions about them. But I bought a book now to make this easier. And it is called Emergency Questions, 1001 Conversation Savers for Every Occasion. So we're not doing the duck and the horse. Eh? We're not doing the duck and the horse. Although you can ask... You can ask it, or you can ask the X-rated version of that if you want instead. But um, maybe we'll keep that. Maybe we'll either keep that for off-air or off-air, like on TV, um, or when we next see each other in person again. Because <laughs> to be fair, I wouldn't usually ask a woman this. Um, it is a bit crude, and don't take that in as a sexist remark because it's not meant to be. But it's just it's more um, just being gentlemanly. <laughs> um, Sorry, I've somehow muted myself then. Um, when, um, yeah, so Johnny, we're not going to ask that silly question around horses and ducks. Instead, I'm going to ask you to pick a number between 1,001, a few numbers probably, we'll do more than one, and I'm going to ask you the question that says, um, they do, I did try this out during the week, and they're not all brilliant in terms of the format I'm about to ask it on, but we'll try, we'll see how they work out. So. What's the three crappiest questions ever? They may end up being, but... Well, actually, let me just give you the context of the book. So the, the, the book itself is basically questions that uh, the author, Richard Herring, has asked uh, guests on his own podcast. Okay. A lot of them are celebrities that he's asked. So the questions might be completely random, like weird, but we'll, we'll okay. see how they turn out. Okay. And it's any, any, any num number to one and 1,001. 13. 13. She's gone low. Okay. Easy to find, hopefully. 13, 13. Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what, I'll also tell you the chapter because the chapter says what person he asked it to originally. So okay. this is... Oh, no, maybe this one isn't. Oh, chapter one is just emergency questions, so maybe he didn't ask anyone these. Um, so your, your question is, what age were you breastfed until? Oh, my God. What? I don't know the answer to that. No. I, I mean, it's a healthy age. It wasn't anything... It was, it was a healthy age. Define healthy age. What, five? <laughs> I've got a little sister, so that's. I'm sure that was probably impossible. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I'm going to. That's my answer. A healthy age. I don't know what the answer it's, is. It's good. That's a good answer because he has underlined <laughs> this question with most people won't remember, but boy, have you hit pay dirt? Pay, I don't even know if this is an American thing. I don't know. Have you hit pay dirt if you find someone who does? <laughs> I don't know what that means. Peter? Have you hit pay dirt? P A Y D I R T. Two words. Yeah. It's got to be a Yank. It's got to be a Yankee phrase or something. I can assume. I think the not known is probably the best answer you could have given. Because if, if you had a known, it's probably a bit weird that you do know for most. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay. Another one. Oh, um, two hundred and twenty-two. Two hundred and twenty-two. Two, two, two. All right. I have the question. So this is from David Mitchell, which I think, as I, because we had the 200 last time I tried it, I think is Mitchell and Webb, the comedian, as in David okay, Mitchell. From Mitchell the, right? the, yeah, exactly. I think it's him. I could be completely wrong. I'm just yeah. guessing. Um, this is a very good one. And maybe relevant. What has been the worst occasion in which you've been totally naked? <laughs> Um, did I mention before that you have to be 100% truthful and authentic? Your words, not mine. 
Ooh. I genuinely stare in my brain like uh, <laughs> I think I'm on red. <laughs> uh, you don't have to say if you don't really want to, or you can just make something up. We wouldn't know anyway. Probably when I was breastfeeding at five years old. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We probably do know it's made up now, to be fair. So <laughs> No one needs to know that. No, okay, right. Pick another one. Mm-hmm. Last one, go on, make it good. One thousand. What oh one thousand, right at the end, right, okay. Um you think it'd be easy to find, but not so much. One nine nine six. One thousand there we go. Oh Jesus Christ. Oh god. Yeah, maybe pick another one because this is a it just says, Shall we go to bed now? Not with each other, unless that's what you want. <laughs> it sounds very much like a child line. <laughs> nine nine nine. Okay. Now you sound German. Um, <laughs> can I please tell you in a, in huge detail about my religious beliefs on the condition that you don't question or contradict me? Again, I don't think it's a very good question. I'm sorry. You're going to have to pick one more. If it doesn't work, we'll, we'll bin it off. <laughs> this book was maybe the worst £3 I've ever spent. I feel like I've picked all the CD ones. Well, again, like I said, maybe it says a lot about your personality. Just saying. Maybe. I've <laughs> no, um, got one more question. We'll end on that. Mm, 700 700 right sorry no, i don't mean to keep you up too late it's fine um, wide awake 700 is worse probably worse yeah is yeah. it yeah i think it is um when were you last cock a hoop i don't even know what that means cock a hoop how do you spell it as in as exactly as it sounds and it's it, it's um yeah um, cock a hoop are you googling this johnny i can i can only imagine what that means i'm I'm just going to pick another the one above it i think would you rather live in a world without deodorant or painkillers oh cock <laughs> painkillers okay yeah I think, I think that's i think that's the right and that's the selfless uh, option, I think, living a world back It was one earlier which I found which I thought was brilliant, and I, I thought they were going to be more around this sort of line, but it was something along the lines of Would you rather have um, brandy snaps for fingers or nipples that secreted mince, the mince meat from mince pies? <laughs> I'd rather have nipples that secreted them. Uh, snack every time you need them. Yeah, and it did, and it did say underneath um, that. Note that <laughs> your fingers will grow again once you eat them, and you will have an unlimited supply of mince pies <laughs> or mince meat. Oh, that's outrageous! Yeah, those are the types of questions I was hoping was going to be more. You. Never mind. Right. Um, <laughs> big thank God. I'm not sure if that was a success or not, but I'm laughing, so I'm going to take it as a success. Um, do you want to um, shout out your socials so that people, if they want to, obviously, if they don't already, follow you, find out more, get in contact if they want your help or support? Yes, my Instagram is where I'm most active, um, and that is at Emilia Thompson PhD. Easy. Okay. Emilia, though, is E M I L I A. Yeah, good. Well done. Good. Just because I appreciate this. Doing the Skype is. <laughs> generally i didn't i now realize it is in front of me but i hadn't um thank you johnny um cool again big thank you for me um i love talking about that sort of stuff i've learned loads as well as i say we're it's a journey we want to go down but which we're very new to but 
you know, is a journey we want to go down. So we're going to continue to learn more. So thank you. And I'm hoping all the listeners also learnt loads. Um, I have nothing more to say other than to say thanks. So thank you for having me. I'm sure Johnny is um, also very good. Something to add. Cock a hoop is a horse. Oh. When was the last time you had horse? Well, there, no, but there's a horse, but there's, there's also many other references to other things. Mm. Oh, are you but it doesn't right, give a definition of what it is, so I thought we'd go with a nice one. It's, uh, mm. it's a racing horse. Yeah. That's very chivalrous of you. We, we're the, like we're like, you, say we're like that on the No Nonsense Nutrition podcast. Chivalrous. chivalrous. Yes. You are on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Thank you so much. I'm going to let you go to sleep now. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast. We'll speak to you all next week.